Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 94, Revelation, the Hour of God's Judgment. And in this episode, we are going to look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. And I really want to focus our attention on what does God's judgment actually mean? What is the hour of his judgment referring to? And ultimately, how and why is this section of Revelation 14 written to encourage and exhort the church? Uh, In other words, what is the church? What are Christians supposed to do with these passages promising um, God's coming hour of judgment on the world? And um, I'm really excited to jump into this. I think we've got uh, just a number of good things to talk about as we work our way through, as we set ourselves up for what's coming in Revelation, and as we're going to look at where we've been, I think we'll try to help position us well to think about these concepts as Christians, as followers of the Lamb. And I'm excited to just jump right into this with you. So let's do it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read the passage that I intend to talk about on this episode, Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now to start us off, I really just want to highlight the end of the passage that I just read, the the last couple of verses, Um, because doing so I think will help us remember again who this passage is being written So here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So saints and those who are in the Lord are referencing the same group of people. These are Christians. And so these verses in Revelation 14, again, are written as an exhortation to the church, to Christians, to followers of the Lamb. And so the caution that John has given to the churches not to align themselves with the ways of the empire is given full expression right here. The ways of the empire, 
or the good news proclamation that Caesar is Lord that Revelation 13 just described, yeah, that empire is going to be judged by the actual Lord, God himself, the creator. And this creator's good news, or as John calls it, his eternal gospel, does not come through the forces of chaos that claim to hold judgment over the world like we saw in Revelation 13. We are supposed to hear the fact that God is the rightful judge. In contrast to the beast's claim that he is on the, is, is the one ruling on his throne and exercising his judgment. So don't forget where Revelation 13 just had us. It was this caution against those taking the mark, aligning their allegiances with him. You, you heard the reference to the mark once again in this passage here, and we're meant to connect it with what's come before. And so the logic of what's set up in our passage kind of goes like this. God's judgment has come. God. God's judgment, his righteous, true, pure, holy judgment. He's judging Babylon as corrupt, as oppressive, as a broken world system that needs to be judged. Um, It's hurting people. It's crushing people. He simply declares it as judged. He says, you know, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And this is sort of a looking toward a, a moment when the Lord is going to decisively deal with all Babylon type structures in this world. Babylon is fallen, or as it's described in Revelation, she who has corrupted the nations. And we see this reference again, this fourfold reference in verse six to every nation and tribe and language and people, right? It's those who dwell on the earth. That's talking about the nations, this fourfold description of all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples who, according to Revelation 13, were deceived by the beast, And we're drawn into worshiping him and to looking for power and looking for status and looking for wealth and looking for empire as the solution to the world's problems. And he has conned people into believing him um, via those ways. And so this is the fate of Babylon. And therefore, what John is saying is if anyone joins themselves to Babylon via the mark of the beast by giving their allegiance to his way of ruling the world, then these people as well will fall. So the logic is, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Beware of finding your safety, allegiance, or identity in any world system, all of which corrupt God's good creation and are themselves corrupt. So the inevitable end of all corrupt things is coming, church. Stand firm in your faith in the Messiah and in his ways. Don't get sucked into worldly claims for power because the hour of God's judgment has come, and I want to identify a few things for you here in verse 11. And we'll get to some of this imagery in a moment, but it says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Look at the contrast verse in verse 13 to a group of people who have no rest day or night. A voice from heaven said, I write this Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So there's a contrast being made between the kinds of people who dwell on the earth, the kinds of people who are at rest in Jesus versus the kinds of people who do not have any rest day or night. And to remind you once again of the conversation I had with Josh Butler on the By the Books episode several weeks ago, 
his discussion on torment versus torture, I think it was a very, very fitting discussion because once again, the word torment is showing up in our passage, torment being the agony and the distress that people experience when something or someone that they love has been taken away from them. Torment arises from the inside. Torture is something that is inflicted from the outside. Sadly, many people think that the judgment of God is God going to be inflicting torturous punishment on people from the outside. We'll get to some reasons why I don't think that's the case here. And as we continue working our way through Revelation, but the bottom line is there is an announcement. An eternal gospel is proclaiming to those who dwell on the earth saying, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And I want us to kind of tie this together for a second, because when we hear the words eternal gospel, the word gospel is just means good news, right? Well, how is it good news to every nation, tribe, language, and people that God's judgment has come? I want you to ponder that for just a second as you're reading through Revelation because sadly, I think people oftentimes miss this. What is good news about God's judgment coming? Well, it's good news to the poor in spirit. It's good news to those who mourn. It's good news for the meek. It's good news for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for true justice to be done in the world. These are the people whose life experiences as outlined and identified in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter five. These are the people who see God's coming to set everything right as good news. And trust me, There are people from every nation, tribe, language, and people who have been on the receiving end of oppressive systems and oppressive structures. And yes, this in very, very much, in fact, is what is being judged when Babylon, fallen, fallen, we're told, is Babylon the Great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the Old Testament doesn't mince too many words when it very seamlessly weaves together idolatry with sexual immorality, idolatry, the worshiping of false gods and thereby becoming false in the way that you live and in the way that you rule versus adultery and sexual immorality and unfaithfulness primarily between God's people and God, but ultimately showing how the other nations of the world have contributed to this. Well, Revelation is painting a picture that when the beast reigns and rules and deceives people, he ends up oppressing people in the process. And this is why the command, the statement, the hour of God's judgment has come is actually good news. Unless you or your people or your place in this world are part of the oppressive systems and structures and brokenness that is wreaking havoc in the world then if you're on that that side of the equation, you probably will not see the coming judgment, the hour of God's judgment as a good thing. And I think it's important to realize this because the way Revelation talks and the way Jesus seems to indicate numerous times in the gospels is that the people that he's come for who have not been fairly treated by those in this world see his coming and his arrival of the the gospel of the kingdom as tremendously good news. Those who find themselves threatened by Jesus's denial of power or jostling for position or not favoring the wealthy and the powerful and the influential, but rather favoring the weak and the poor and those without any clout in this world, that disrupts some people. 
and it, it may disrupt you. It, it's been disrupting me in my own life as I look around this world and I see the positions that I'm in and I realize that for my life to be reoriented to the ways of the kingdom, I'm actually going to have to lose many things that I've found value in and have shaped my identity around, whereas someone who is truly poor and truly mourning over the brokenness and loss that they've experienced in their life has tremendous things to gain when they come into the kingdom. And we may have time in future episodes to talk a little bit about that. So I just want to bring your attention to the Gospel of John, actually, because when we focus in on the hour of God's judgment, um, John actually uses this word hour several times, and um, it's typically found on the lips of Jesus. But let me just read for you an example, one of them we looked at in last week's episode, the sermon I preached from John chapter 2. We read in verse 3 of that chapter, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I'm not sure Jesus is speaking the way you and I speak about when we think of an hour. We think of 60 minutes or we think of, you know, between three and four o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. No, this hour is this focused time where all things in Jesus's ministry are pointing. They're pointing to this moment when the Lord is going to decisively act in history to bring about justice, to bring about righteousness, to establish his kingdom. And something similar is happening in Revelation. But before we get there, let me read several more verses from John to help us kind of complete the picture. In John 12, verse 27, Jesus says this, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, here's Jesus noticing that his hour is actually rapidly approaching and that it is about time for him to reveal himself as he actually is to all of the world. Listen to John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is verse one of John 17. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Now, this one, particularly in my mind, is, is one of the most powerful, and it's very similar to what we read in Revelation 14, 7. Remember, in Revelation 14, 7, it said to this, this eternal gospel, right, that we are to proclaim or that is going to be proclaimed to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Well, amazingly, according to John 17, 1, Jesus prayed for the strength to give God glory during the hour of God's coming revelation. What you might see is God's coming revelation of who he is, God's coming revelation of what true justice and righteousness look like in this world, which is ultimately the idea centering around God's judgment. God in his coming, in his very being, in his very presence, when he reveals to the world who he is and what he is like, he in fact judges and exposes everything that isn't godlike as the corrupt, fallen, broken systems that they actually are. And so what did it mean 
for Jesus to give God glory? What did it mean for Jesus to reveal God's justice and God's judgment on corrupt world systems? The hour of his death. Well, I think you know the answer, and we've been talking about this all the way through the book of Revelation. Because everything about God's revealing himself perfectly for who he is was not done with a sword, slashing and defeating and wiping out his enemies. It was dying for them. Which means if you take that idea and you connect it to God continuing to reveal himself to all the world, there has to be a connection there or else we are disconnecting it from the roots which began this whole process. And God tells us there, Jesus does, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't see there there being a consistent way of viewing Jesus as now a, a soon-to-be-coming tyrant who's going to act the way Caesar once did in real time, but Jesus you know, gets to do it in the future because, well, he's God and, and he gets a free pass. But that's not God as he's been revealed in Jesus. And so let me just read for you a, a brief section from Eugene Boring's commentary. I love what he says here. It's just a couple sentences, so um, I won't re- go on forever. But every event of apocalyptic violence in chapters 6 through 19 of, this, of the book of Revelation must be seen as derived from the scene of chapters four to five. And so just remind you, the scene in chapter four was this throne, uh, the one seated on the throne and angels and four living creatures and 24 elders were worshiping him day and night as the creator. Revelation five was, he was sitting there with a scroll and no one was worthy to open it. All of a sudden, John hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He turns to see this lion. He sees a lamb. The lamb is now worthy to take the scroll and open its seals and all creation falls down and worships the lamb who has redeemed the world and worships the one who sits on the throne as the creator. So that's a central vision of the book. And so Boring goes on to say, this means that all of chapters 6 through 19 transpires from the hand of the Lamb. All is situated in the cross of Jesus Christ. These texts then must not be read in themselves, but only in relation to that love which sacrifices itself for those who hate it. The Lamb is the controlling image throughout. And he goes on to say that only when we acknowledge that Revelation hopes for the conversion of the nations will we be able to see that it does not advocate a theology of resentment, but a theology of justice. Justice is what we are after. Judgment is what we are after. And Jesus himself took that judgment. He declared sin and death and oppressive structures to be the empty, vain, worthless things that they are when he judged them as such in their stupidity and and emptiness when he allowed them to put him to death on the cross. This, though, was not for Jesus some like mental exercise or simple, simple assignment. He was sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane because of the agony he faced realizing this is what was about to happen to him. So Jesus is able, as the author of Hebrews will tell us, to fully enter into the woes and the disasters and the heartbreak and the heartache and the fear and the anxiety and the frustration and the burdens of life in this world under oppressive systems because he's already walked that for us. And so you might ask, then how does this actually work? 
How, how does this work out in the real world? So let me, let me remind you of a portion of Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, that I read um, numerous episodes ago. And, and just to remind you again, um, Michael Gorman and I had a conversation that I put on this podcast several weeks ago um, for a By the Book um, episode. It's one of the most listened to episodes now on this podcast, and, and it's possible that some of you are even listening to this episode now as a result of having found the podcast because of Dr. Gorman, and I'm very thankful for him and for his insights into the scriptures. But let me read just a couple of thoughts of his. You might recognize these from previous episodes. Sometimes God's judgment in Revelation takes the form of imperial practices themselves or the consequences of such practices. War, famine, pestilence, death, injustice in the marketplace, and rebellion are all portrayed in chapters 6 through 20, and all are human evils rather than cosmic events. Revelation presents Christ as the lion who reigns as the lamb, not in spite of being the lamb. This means also that Revelation presents God as the one who reigns through the lamb, not in spite of the lamb. Lamb power is God power, and God power is lamb power. If these claims are untrue, then Jesus is not in any meaningful way a faithful witness. All of this means that judgment by God or by Christ in Revelation must be an expression of divine identity that is not in conflict with lamb power. The judgment of the world originates in its failure to believe and be faithful to this God. When it creates its own deities, it suffers the natural consequences of deifying the non-divine. In this sense, judgment proceeds from the throne of God and from the lamb because the rejection of the divine gift of life carries with it inherent deadly consequences. It is not, therefore, because imperial power and lamb power coexist in God that wrath descends from God's throne, but because when humans reject lamb power, they experience it as imperial disaster, disordered desire, death, and destruction. Now, I think Gorman is absolutely right. And if you don't believe what he's saying, listen to this. Look in verse 8 of Revelation 14, the passage we just read. Another angel followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Okay, now this is the ESV, and the ESV has translated this word, the passion, all right? But in verse 9 and 10, it says this, another angel said, if anyone worships the beast and its image or receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, right? So we're talking about the judgment of God, the wrath of God. Well, it's interesting that the ESV chooses two different English words to translate the same Greek word, but the Greek word thumos is the translated as passion in verse 8, and it's translated as wrath in verse 10, but it's the same word. It's the same concept. So in Revelation 14, 8, it says that Babylon, this corrupt system, made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. They followed into her ways. They experienced the bitterness, drinking the cup that this system has provided for them. Babylon has crushed and destroyed everybody under its oppressive ways. That's the way that it works. When the Lord's ways are revealed, 
people see their corrupt systems and their corrupt ways of living as the corrupt things that they actually are. Because the Lord is not like Babylon. He doesn't operate the same as Babylon. He doesn't defeat Babylon at Babylon's own game as much as saying, I'm going to show them that their way of doing life collapses in on itself. And so when John begins to describe the violent scenes of coming destruction, right, which we see, I mean, they're going to drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Again, we have the lamb here. He's present. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So again, it's, it's torment. Um, it's these internal realities that are being experienced when something that they once loved or once um, someone that they once loved or something that they once had or were holding on to have been removed from them. And it's as we looked at way at the beginning of our Revelation study where I tried to compare the mourning you know, every tongue will, every tribe will see him and all the world will, will wail on account of him from Revelation 1-7 or 1-8 rather and pointing out the idea that people will mourn on the earth. Those who have waited for Jesus and who are in the process of mourning over the lack of justice on this earth, that's the kind of mourning Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5. But there is another kind of mourning that goes on is very, very clearly described in Revelation 18 as those who are weeping and mourning over the greatness of Babylon that is now gone. It's a very different response to God's coming presence, God's coming justice, God's coming judgment. And I think it would do us tremendous good to recognize the differences between how Babylon exercises its rule and how God, through the Lamb, exercises his Now, the passage that I were working on in this episode uh, begins what I would argue over the next several chapters are, are some fairly strong, um, violent, pretty grotesque type images that John uses when he is describing this fall of Babylon, fall of those who have the mark of the beast and who follow Babylon in her corrupt, um, adulterous type ways and so on. And I think it's important, particularly in a, in a society still, I've seen that many people continue to think that Revelation is ultimately a book just about the future and about the, the gruesome and grueling type of judgment that is coming. But I do think it's important to remember that um, John's context in his own present was a context where many of the realities described in Revelation were just counterbalances to. Um, for instance, so John would describe at length what was going on by the, the work of the beast and the mark of the beast. And we've looked at the fact that Nero in his oppressive reign as Caesar and the structures that surfaced as a result of that type of oppressive reign, the churches who, to whom John wrote knew that reality. So when Revelation 14 turns around and describes those very people, those very Christians as needing to hold out hope and following the faithful ways of the lamb because it's going to be worth it in the end, that was a real reality to them. So their present suffering was made 
um, was was given some some ease and some comfort and some encouragement about what we know is coming and how those type of oppressive structures that are making their lives miserable will one day be fully judged. And so uh, Eugene Boring again just he says this really really well. And um, I just want to remind us of this by just reading several sentences of something that he says. Um, he, he says it's important to remember that John's thought did not begin with visions about future suffering. It began with the fact of suffering in his own present. Apocalyptic thought gives experienced suffering a meaning by placing it in a cosmic context, functioning as hermeneutics of the present not speculation about the future, as illustrated in Israel's imprecatory psalms, psalms where Israel would be pleading with the Lord to bring swift judgment on their enemies for their mockery and for their disdain of, of God's people, a community that feels itself pushed to the edges of society and the edges of its own endurance will, in its worship, give vent to the natural feelings of resentment, even revenge, as it anticipates the eschatological turning of the tables. Even then, cries for revenge, rather than being personal, are but a plea for the justice of God to be made manifest publicly. And Boring goes on. So none of the violence in the scenes of chapter 6 to 16 is literal violence against the real world. It is violence in a visionary scene of the future expressed in metaphorical language. The sword and fire by which the evil of the earth is judged and tormented are not literal swords and fire, but metaphors for the cutting, searing word. And we looked at this in episode 50, actually, Revelation, a sharp two-edged sword where I spoke about the fact that this sword protruding out of Jesus' mouth and the sword that the Messiah from Isaiah 11 was going to wield and to slay his enemies with the breath of his mouth, this is not referring to Jesus carrying a sword like Peter wanted Jesus to do <laughs> and to swipe down his enemies. Rather, Jesus' words, he tells us in John 12, is what is going to judge people on the final day. And we need to be aware of the way metaphors are always at work and are in even passages that are more familiar to us. Again, if we were to step outside of Revelation for a second, where, where not everything is so heightened and so um, placed in grandiose language, we read this in normal letters that are written to the churches. So for instance, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Paul says that no one can lay a foundation other than that, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I've been in the church for quite a number of years, and I don't know anyone who in reading 1 Corinthians 3 ever reads Paul's words about fire there literally. 
There's no, nobody's burning alive. Nobody's coming out of a house fire and, and after they rip their burning clothes off and they get 13 skin grafts to repair the burnt flesh that they will be saved but only as through fire. No, nobody, nobody thinks that that's what this means. And yet think – look at how many times Paul uses the word for fire and he's talking about the works that you're building up. And if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, listen, he's not talking about building materials. <laughs> but he is going to make a comparison between the kinds of things that in a fire would be burned up in a snap versus the kinds of things that would withstand the coming judgment, the coming fires. And this is why Peter picks up on similar themes in his letter. So 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So here, Peter references a trial, right? And he adds the the adjective fiery. Like, yeah, right. We we, we see it as fire. It's something that's, you know, burning and it's going to corrupt things and destroy things. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here we go again, back to fear God and give him glory. And Jesus is asking that the Father would glorify his name through Jesus's hour on the cross. And so Peter, excuse me, really wants his people to be reminded of this. And so he says to him in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, did you, did you catch all of the connections that I think are in this passage to what we read in Revelation 14? Entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, the creator the one who we are to fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is how the Lord is being described in Revelation 14 as a reason to to rejoice because his judgment is coming. And yet Peter tells us and reminds us that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So God's judgment is always directed toward his own people. It's always a revealing of God's true nature to those with eyes to see, to those with ears to hear, to him who has more will be given and to him who thinks he has something, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. That's right, because the Lord pours more of his own presence and grace into the hearts of those who are open to receiving him as he reveals himself to be. And those who close themselves off to that reality, even the parts of God they think they understand are going to be taken from them. Because when God is truly revealed, the God they chose not to believe in, everything they've built their life on is gonna be burned up in a flash. And in that moment, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a chance that they can be saved but it's not gonna have anything to do with the types of things they built up that are gonna last in the kingdom. And that's going to be a sad reality. It's not gonna be, oh great, I'm in heaven now, everything's great. It's gonna be sad. 
that their lives were spent doing nothing, building nothing, encouraging no one, loving no one. And so Peter's trying to remind his listeners, look, Jesus went through this. He endured all of this. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I want you to be on the receiving end of hope and joy when his glory is revealed, not on the receiving end of judgment. And so judgment is this interesting idea. The Lord is judging things. His hour of judgment has come, right? And he's going to judge Babylon as being the oppressive regime that it is. It's fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, right? And so what he's saying is do not attach yourself via the mark of the beast to anything that Babylon is pushing. Allegiance, trust, hope in any world system because that world system is corrupted and it is will corrupt everything that it touches. Don't be a part of that because that ship is going down. That ship is an illusion. I've already judged that as an illusion on the cross, but for those people in this world who continue living in a way that does not honor me as I've revealed myself to be, when I come back, it is going to be shown that those ways have no part in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so this is a judgment beginning with the household of God. This is an exhortation to the Christians. This is an exhortation to the church. And my goodness, today in our culture, in this place, in America, in 2020, we absolutely need a, a reminder that worldly systems and worldly powers and whoever has the most strength and whoever has the most influence and who can push his way through a crowd the fastest, that type of a mentality, which sadly is embodied a lot by our current president, that type of reality is it's like the antithesis to the ways of the lamb. And when the hour of God's judgment has come, that type of mentality and anyone who is caught up in that system is going to see the flaws in what it is. And the church's exhortation is come out of that, my people. I don't want you to get sucked into those kinds of ideologies. I don't want you to find yourself comfortable and at home and at ease and at rest in that kind of world system because it is coming to an end. It was already judged as being futile in this world by Jesus on the cross, the hour that, that had come for him. And so what, what it's important to recognize is the way then God judges those oppressive systems by taking that judgment onto himself. And, it, and it, it, it inverts the way we typically think of judgment. And let me give you a, a classic example, which may help because I know sometimes I speak, I'm, a, I'm an N on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFP, but I'm an N. And I think a lot of times in abstract, I don't, I don't think in concrete um, situations quite so much. So I'm able to dance between concepts and ideas. And that, and that serves me well as far as it goes, but I sometimes can be in the clouds and not bring things down to the earth. And so I want to help you do that. So let's go back in your mind to the time when the Lord um, overthrew Egypt by rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And, and if you, you think about judgment, you might ask this question, right? Did God 
over, did God throw the Egyptian army into this, the Red Sea? Or did the Egyptians themselves go into the Red Sea in pursuit of Israel? And what's really interesting to me is that the way Exodus tells the story and then the song that Miriam sings with all the people in the very next chapter in Exodus chapter 15, let me, let me read to you the way the Bible itself tells us the answer to the question I just posed, okay? So in, in chapter 14, verse 23, the people are panicky. The Lord opens up the waters. People go through, Egypt goes through. And here's what it says. It says that the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. That's Exodus 14, 23. It's just very simple, very plain. You scroll down four verses later and there's a slightly different um, analysis of what's going on. And it says, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And you're scratching your head because you're like, well, you just told me that Pharaoh and his army um, pursued and went in after Israel into the midst of the sea, right? But four verses later, we're told, and, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And so you come to Exodus 15 and this song breaks out, right? And let me read for you verses one and verse four. This is fascinating. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea. This is what Israel sings. They praise the Lord. So what's going on here? Who brought about Pharaoh's judgment? Was Pharaoh responsible or was the Lord responsible? Answer, yes. Did the Lord deliver Israel from Pharaoh's oppressive rule over them? Yes. How? And here's what I want you to catch. He did so by an act of creation. Remember, creation is the way, the, the creator, that's how Revelation 14 is referring to God right now. But his act of creation, what do I mean by that? Well, think about what he does with the Red Sea. He separates the waters from the waters and he makes a space for his people to walk across on dry land. Now, that's Genesis 1 language. The Lord separates the waters from the waters, and he has the waters below and the waters above, right? That's an act of creation. The whole creation was covered with one giant body of water, and it proved to be chaos and darkness, and, and the Spirit of God hovered over the, you know, hovered over the, the deep, right? The Lord brings order and through a spoken act of creation, he separates the water and he brings dry land into the mix. So when the Lord creates a space of dry land for his people to walk across by separating the water, a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right, a good reader of the Bible will recognize that as creation language. It's Genesis 1 language. But when Pharaoh and his army attempt to use God's act of creation against the people God made his creation for, he withdraws his hand and allows the chaotic waters to once again return to their pre-creation state. The result, the waters swallow Pharaoh and his army. Are you tracking with me here? This is the way the Bible speaks. 
even though Exodus 14.23 tells us straight up that Egypt pursued Israel and went in after them into the midst of the sea, the four verses later combines it's both the Egyptians as they went in, the Lord threw them in, and then by the time you get to chapter 15, the people are singing a full-fledged song praising God for doing it. So this is so interesting. How this actually works then, I think, will help us clarify something that Jesus says when he comes because Jesus also addresses this idea of judgment. And let me quote for you and read for you rather the most famous New Testament verse and then immediately how the love of God compares with the judgment of God. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Verse 19, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, We can take Jesus's idea of judgment. Here's the judgment. You ready for it? The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. This is is what is going to happen in the end. The truth, righteousness himself is going to come back and everything that is fake versions of righteousness, everything that may have masked itself as righteousness, but in reality is corrupt and wicked and oppressive, Those things are going to hate the revealing of the truth. They're going to hate the revealing of the light. They're going to hate and they're going to attempt to put to death that very reality. It's precisely why Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross. And it is also the same exact reason that when the Lord returns, all those things that oppressed the people of his creation are going to have to face him. And so you might ask this question, what led to Pharaoh's downfall? Well, it was his love of the darkness, specifically his belief that enslaving other people in order to make his empire's economy great led straight to his own destruction. His entitled belief that other human beings could be used and abused to further his empire's greatness did not allow him to see his actions as oppressive. And even if he did, he didn't care. And when the light came through the Lord's word spoken through Moses of, you know, let my people go, Pharaoh refused to comply. He loved the darkness rather than the light because his works were evil. And so when the Lord rescued the people of Israel, Pharaoh went after them because he wanted to bring them back into slavery. And it was his own darkness in thinking that human beings should be slaves of other human beings that led directly to his destruction. And so again, I ask, did the Lord destroy Pharaoh or did Pharaoh destroy himself? The answer again is 
Yes. This is how Exodus 14 and 15 want us to think about judgment. And I would like to propose that we would do incredibly well to read the rest of the Old Testament descriptions of judgment in exactly the same way. Does the Lord judge nations? Yes, he does. Do those nations in their corrupt ways judge themselves? Yes, they do. And in Revelation 18, we are going to see very clearly that the cup of wine that Babylon mixed is going to be made into a double portion and she's going to drink it herself. There is a corruption that takes place when people live corruptly and the ultimate judgment and the ultimate justice and the ultimate wrath, if you will, of God is to allow the people to experience the natural consequences that come as a result of their own waywardness and their own fallenness. The kingdom of God is a beautiful reality and one day it will be fully realized. And those who've lived this life as if their ways are capable of bringing in that kingdom are going to see the true revelation of the kingdom of God as something that they do not like in any way, shape or form. And they personally will experience torment with no rest at all because everything they've clung to in this world and built up for themselves and placed their hopes in that they thought were going to bring about you know, pleasure and joy and hope, all of those things are going to be taken away and it will be agony for many people. The Lord doesn't desire that to be the case for anyone. And yet John knows Peter knows, Jesus knows that you have to start somewhere. And so he starts with the church. He starts with the Christians by calling them out to live a different kind of life, by calling them out of fallen Babylon into the new creation to begin living out the kingdom of God now on the earth to show the world there's a better way, to love the world in a way that isn't coercive and manipulative and, and, and passive aggressive, but is one that truly finds its rest and hope through the spirit in Jesus. That's what Revelation 14 is trying to describe. That's why it says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. This is always a call for the endurance of the saints, but Revelation is just describing the scene for us in perfect words and perfect images rather. We need to be able to see what is coming. And then we need to be able to say to Jesus as we follow him, Help us to be faithful to you and not get sucked in to worldly corrupt ways of thinking. And so that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for walking along this with me. I've talked with several of you this week that are encouraged by the podcast and a number of new New people, I believe, have, have found the podcast. It's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. I find so much joy and excitement myself for doing this. If you want to reach out via email to ask a question or make a comment, unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thank you so much for those of you who are supporting the podcast on a monthly basis. It's such an encouragement to me and um, to others that I'm able to encourage with the money that you're supporting the podcast with. Um, Thank you as well for those who have left me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. I do greatly appreciate that. I think Apple iTunes is the place where um, I'm getting the most traction. And so even if you're not an Apple user, um, I do think on on just your web browser on your desktop or something, you can probably find Unbinding the Bible on the the iTunes um, link, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have a Mac on... um, but I'm able to access that link. And I wonder if there's a way to leave a review there because I know several of you 
Um, say you listen to it, but you listen on different different apps. So if you would consider doing that for the podcast, that does help others to find the the show and to to connect with us and um, and just to continue to move forward. So hope things are going well for you and uh, have a great week.